0: Uh, well, good morning. Uh, you will see that we are continuing our Luke series uh, this morning. Uh, you may beg to differ, but uh, with a little bit of imagination today 's passage is going to be luke chapter twenty two today 's passage Kind of resembles a football manager trying to prepare his squad for the greatest match in their history. It's like they're facing their fiercest arch enemies, the fiercest opposition, with a massive trophy at stake. And so he needs them to be totally focused on the task that lies ahead of them. He's just outlined the strategy that they need to follow if they are to have any chance whatsoever of winning. Uh, He has uh, warned them that the opposition are unbelievably cunning uh, and we're very quick to exploit any weakness that they can see. But the minute the manager stops talking, the team start to argue about which of them is the best player. They boast about how many goals they've scored, squabble over who's been man of the match the most. They can't agree about who should be playing in which particular position. Even argue over who should hold the trophy for the photographs after the match. Hard to imagine a team being less ready for a big game. And so the manager tries again. He explains to them they've come a long way together as a team. He's moulded them into an outfit with a phenomenal chance of success. He's got great plans for where they're going to go from here. He then takes the captain to one side warns him that he's going to have a particularly tough game, but assures him at the same time that it will be all right in the end. Captain protests, no, no, no no need to worry, he's going to give 110%. But the manager tells him that before half-time, he'll have given away two penalties and will have run the risk of getting sent off. The captain storms off, offended by the whole thing. Kind of feels like they're talking at cross-purposes. And so with a sigh the manager eventually calls a halt to the team talk. A number of years back now, uh, I vaguely remember seeing an interview with one of the greatest football managers ever, Bill Shankly, where he denied that football was a matter of life and death. It's way more important than that, he used to argue. But according to Luke, The specific matter facing the disciples in today's passage was actually the most important of all time. This was to be the greatest turning point in all of history. As we're going to see, the team of disciples simply weren't ready for it. Jesus has just explained to them the significance of what he is about to do on the cross. And all the disciples do is is argue among one another about which of them is the greatest, which prompts Jesus to offer some pretty profound teaching that completely turns upside down all of their assumptions about what it means to be truly great. Got to pick it up in verse 19, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me for it has been determined that the son of man must die but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him the disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and the great men, they lord it over their people, yet they're called benefactors or friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves." You've stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your face should not fail." So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Now if you remember, and we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago now, ago, ago now uh, I showed you how it teaches us that Jesus' death is very much the center of history. Jesus' death is the solution to the great mystery. Jesus' death must be applied personally. Really, what I want to do this morning is show you one further thing that I think we can learn from these verses about Jesus' death. Here it is. Jesus' death is the foundation for a radically new, profoundly different community. Jesus' death is the foundation for a radically new, profoundly different community. Here's what's interesting. If you were to go away and read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'd find that Luke is the only one who tells us that this arguing over who's going to be the greatest happens in the context of the Last Supper. He's the only one to bring this out. Here's what I think he's trying to show us. He wants us to see that the cross doesn't just change us as individuals, it doesn't merely give us forgiveness and happiness or peace just in an individual way. Now, if you understand the meaning of the cross, If the cross comes right into your life, it brings you into a community, a radically new and different community. It's as though he's saying you haven't really understood or grasped the meaning of the cross until that happens. Listen, you haven't really understood the meaning of the cross if you just pitch up for a church meeting every so often and don't let the cross compel you and draw you and attract you and cement you into a whole new community. Until that happens, it's as though the penny hasn't fully dropped. What do I mean by that? Well, there are three things that I think we can draw out from this passage that are marks of this community that the cross creates. Number one, the cross creates a community that is an intimate family. Number two, the cross creates a community that is a countercultural society. Number three, the cross creates a community where there is hope for those who fail. Those are three things I want us to look into. This morning. Here's the first one. The first thing we're told here is the cross creates an intimate family. If you remember, the whole backdrop to this passage is Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Now one thing you kind of miss, and I certainly missed it over the years, reading this passage over and over again, but it's one of those facts about the passage that is so obvious that you easily miss it. Where did people celebrate their Passover every year? Where did you celebrate your Passover? You celebrated the Passover with your immediate family. Remember last time we said that the head of the family gets up and the family gathers around, the youngest child around the table, says, why isn't tonight like all other nights? Every one of these disciples, they had family somewhere else who were around a table celebrating the Passover that night. But Jesus, this is very odd. Jesus has the audacity to pull every one of his disciples away from their immediate family on Passover night. He brings them into this room to celebrate the Passover with him. Here's what Jesus is saying and it's pretty radical. He says, if you understand the cross you will find that the cross doesn't just make you a member of a club who all have the same beliefs, but it puts you into a family. You have this intimate family relationship with everyone else who understands the cross. Or to put it another way, the reason why you feel this great strong bond to people you're in the same family with isn't just because of biology. I've got a friend, for example, he's got, well, they've got three children. One's adopted, two are biological children. And over time, what I've noticed is there isn't actually a whole lot of difference between them. Because what makes them feel like family is they've had so much common experience together over the years. They've lived in the same homes, they've eaten the same food, they've watched the same TV programs, they've gone on the same holidays, they have the same geography, the same experience of father and mother and so on. It's like when you have so much shared experience, when you grow up, as different as you may end up being, there's so much common experience with the person you were raised with, you feel a bond, you feel a closeness, a connection, a sense of being joined together. And part of what Jesus is saying here, by pulling the disciples out like this, is that as strong as that bond can be from all of that common experience growing up together, the experience of the cross is stronger still. It's like when you live in the good of the cross of Jesus Christ, it is such a radical identity change that the connection you feel with anyone else who's had that experience is even deeper than the connection you will feel with someone you grew up with. Even if the other person who believes in the cross, has nothing else in common with you. Different race, different education, different income, different politics, different job, different postcode. doesn't matter. You still have the basis for a deeper unity with anyone else who has experienced the cross of Jesus Christ than you do even with someone you were raised with. That's what I think Jesus is showing us here when you follow him and the cross becomes the center of your life when you come to understand what the cross means for you you'll come to appreciate the stunning reality that you have been brought into an intimate family you know we talk a lot here about understanding that god is our father and rightly so But let's not miss the incredible truth that this means we're part of a much bigger family. Because we relate vertically with God as Father, we now relate horizontally with one another in the church as family. I don't know what kind of family experience you've had. Whether you come from a really close-knit family or perhaps a broken family. Maybe right now you have no family at all. Regardless of your background, regardless of your experience of natural earthly families, God's design for you is to have the very greatest experience of family in the community of the cross. I think the word that God wants to underline for some of you this morning is that you belong. You belong in this family first thing that we can glean from this passage the second thing that jesus tells us is the cross creates a countercultural society the community that's created by the cross isn't just a warm family as wonderful as that is Now, Jesus wants us to grasp that the community that he died to create is an upside-down kingdom. It's a complete counterculture. You see, the disciples have this argument. What does Jesus say? Verse 25, Jesus told them, In this world, the kings and the great men, they lord it over their people, yet they're called benefactors or friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Now, once again... I think we could very easily just skip over this and miss the point that Jesus is making here. You see, he's referring to the patronage system that was very much part and parcel of life back in that society. Basically, the people higher up the social or economic ladder would give help to people who they viewed as being lower down. But it was always in order to get something back in return, always to get some kind of payback so if you had a benefactor who helped you it's as though you ended up owing them the rest of your life you owed them political favors you owed them perks you owed them support that's just the way it works now although we perhaps don't think in terms of a whole patronage system nowadays and this word benefactor it sounds a bit old-fashioned nonetheless isn't this pretty much how the world still works today it's like I help people I'm generous to people, but only the ones who will give me something back in return. I'm friendly to people. I love hanging out with people. I'm hospitable, always people in my home, but only people where there's a payoff for me. I want to be friends with the most powerful people the wealthiest people, the most popular people. I want to be in with the attractive people, the smart people, the cool people, the most influential people, because that helps me, makes me look good, makes me feel better about myself. Isn't that the way the world works? Isn't that the way it is at your school, on your course, where you work, at your toddler group? And sadly, very often in the church as well. But Jesus says, when the cross comes into your life, that absolutely normal, instinctive way of sorting through people and choosing some for relationships and friendship and rejection for others, that is gone. Absolutely gone. Jesus says, among you it will be different. Out there in the world, people help and relate to others where there's some kind of payoff. Not so in the community of the cross, not so in the church. I want you to love people indiscriminately. I don't want you to love people for your sake, I want you to love them for their sake, for love's sake, indiscriminately, whether or not there is ever any payoff, whether or not there is anything in it for you. That's what I mean when I say that the community Jesus died to create is an upside-down kingdom. here's a challenge for you and me. Here's a challenge for us as a church. Do our relationships look any different to those out there in the world? Could it be said of us that the community that we enjoy is is truly countercultural? Does the way that we relate to one another provide a clear demonstration of the powerful message of the cross, where Jesus laid down his life for those who didn't deserve a thing? You see, it's not enough to simply hang out with people who we like the most and who are most like us, and to be civil or even merely warm towards everyone else. Through this passage, Jesus is asking each one of us, do you see how I've come among you as one who serves? Do you actually realize what I did on the cross for you? If you do, It must radically, radically change all of your relationships. Power, recognition, status, comfort, money, popularity, self-esteem. Those things do not control you anymore. You're not in it for what you can get from people. You are there to give. You're not there to get all your needs met. You're there to meet the needs of others. You're not there just to be served but to Serve. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that kind of community? Well, that's what a genuine understanding and experience of the cross produces. So it goes without saying. That's the kind of community that we are constantly striving towards here at Church Central. It's completely countercultural. That's the second point. Here's the third one. Lastly, the cross creates a community where there is hope, real, substantial hope for those who fail. If you remember, very right end of the passage, Jesus turns to Simon Peter, turns to the person who's going to be one of the key leaders of this new community that he's building. What does Jesus do? Does so he turn to Simon Peter and say, Simon Simon Do you know why I'm going to use you to strengthen the church? Do you know why you are going to be the one who's going to be the leader? It's because your record is impeccable. It's because your performance up to now has been absolutely flawless. That's why I've chosen you to be a leader. Just like it is in the rest of the world, I only want the best to be leaders in this brand new community that I'm building. No, that is not what he says. He says, Simon, Simon you are going to fail me badly tonight. The cowardice, the self-absorption, the weakness, the lack of integrity at the foundations of your life are about to be laid bare for everyone down through history to see. You see, when you live a life like that, when you do selfish deeds, when you look out for yourself to save your own skin and just trample on the needs of others, It's really what Peter does that night. Jesus tells us here, when you do that, you play right into the hands of the evil forces that pervade the world. They're always looking for fresh ways to aid and abet people in selfish, unjust behaviour. It's like when you give yourself to that kind of behaviour, you give yourself to those evil forces and the leader of that evil force, Satan himself, so, Jesus says, Peter, Satan is going to want to have you. He's going to demand his rights to you. But I will not let you go. I will hold on to you. And verse 32: When you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Is you that what Jesus is saying? out there in the world, who are the leaders? The biggest successes. Here in my community, who are the leaders? The biggest repenters. Out in the world, who are the leaders? The people with the best record. In my community, who are the leaders? The people who have perhaps messed up the most, but have repented and thrown themselves on the grace of God in an attempt to reach out to any scientists in the room. Let me give you a bit of mock chemistry. Failure thrown into a vat of repentance and reliance on the grace of God will turn that failure to pure gold. It will turn your failure to wisdom. It will turn your failure to compassion towards others. It will turn your failure to self-knowledge and understanding. It will turn you into a leader, at least a leader in this kind of community. It's wonderful. However badly we may feel like we have failed, even though the world may have written us off, even if you have written yourself off, there is still real hope for us in this radical new community. Right now, you may feel like what you have done has completely blown it. But this is the message for you today. There is a way back. And it's through the door of repentance. If you follow the example of Simon Peter, who denied Jesus, rejected him when Jesus was looking to rely on him the most. There's a way back for him through repentance There is for you too. And if you'll repent today and receive grace from God, there's responsibility he wants to build on you. There's leadership that he will entrust to you. There's prominence in this community that he's building. There is hope even for those who fail. Listen, there's never been a community like this. And Jesus says the cross creates it which I guess begs the question, how? How does the cross turn you into a person who can have this kind of love and community? But do you remember what we said? We said Jesus spells it out plainly. He says, I will not have you working on that old patronage system. I won't have you merely being benefactors. He says, here's how people in the world work. They see two people out there. Here's one who's beautiful, smart, powerful. Here's one who's not pointing at anyone in particular, ugly and weak and unpopular. Who do you want to sit next to? Who do you want to be friends with? Who do you want to give your life to? Who do you want to help? He says, people in the world, they almost always go towards the people who give them some kind of payoff. He says, I do not want you to be like that. You think, yeah, I've got the message. I've heard you say that already. But I still don't get it. I still don't get how I'm going to ever change. I mean, why would I even do that? Here's why. Because inside, don't you have a problem? If you're being honest, isn't there an inner emptiness? Every now and again, isn't there doubt? Think about it. Why do you like hanging out with the smart people? Isn't it because you don't want to appear stupid? You're afraid you might be? Why do you try and hang out with the powerful people, the influential people? Isn't it because you don't want to feel weak? And you know under the surface you are. Now look, at the end of the day there's only one way to solve this problem. And here's what it is. She says, look, in order to feel powerful, in order to feel brilliant, in order to feel beautiful, you need to try and seek out the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most brilliant, the highest, the most magnificent person in the whole universe. Seek that person out and experience their love and their acceptance and their friendship. And then and only then, Will you finally be free to no longer be selfish, self-seeking, self-serving, mercenary in all your other relationships? In other words, once you find someone like that, then in all other relationships, you'll be able to be indiscriminate. You'll give yourself. You will serve. You won't have to say, well, I need to be friends with that person because then it makes me feel better about myself. You won't need to do that anymore. You won't need that payoff You're not in it to get your own needs met if you already have it all in relationship with someone who will never let you down, who knows you completely inside out and still accepts you. And Jesus says, I am the one. That's why Jesus is able to say, among you it will be different. Because the ultimate beauty, the ultimate, Ultimate brilliant, the ultimate powerful person loves you. Here's how I want to close this out. Earlier on in this passage, back in verse 15, Jesus says, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Other versions translate it, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. But how, however hard they try, The English translators aren't going to be able to fully get the meaning across here. Jesus literally says, with desire, I have desired this. It's a Jewish way of writing, aimed at communicating intensity of feeling, strength of emotion. It's as though Jesus is saying, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much my heart is bursting with love for you. You have no idea what I'm about to do for you. You have no idea the depths of my love, the height of my love, the width of my love, the length of my love. But you will when you find out the meaning of my death. That is why I eagerly desire for you to finally understand what I did for you on the cross. Because when you find that out, then you'll be different. Then you'll be totally changed. When you experience the full weight of my love for you, then it will set you free from having to constantly search out relationships to try and get your needs met when you get the strength of my love for you, when you've known it, when you have felt it, when you have lived in the good of it, that has the power to transform every other relationship. That is the solution to how the cross turns you into a person who creates this radical new community.